You're listening to Travel Tales with Fergal. Welcome to the first episode proper, and I couldn't think of a better person to start with. I hope this podcast series will fuel your armchair travelling imagination, so despite the current travel restrictions, we should never stop dreaming of future adventures. Our first guest, Damien Brown, is a former professional rugby player hailing from Galway. Damien's passion for travel and adventure has led him to visit more than 50 countries on six continents. Damien is an adventurer in the truest sense of the word. I've been close to following his every adventure on social media for years. Damien has been using the world's most extreme environments to test his physical and mental capabilities. He has trekked through the Sahara Desert and spent 63 days rowing solo across the Atlantic. He's climbed five of the seven summits and gone on adventures to some of the most beautiful but less travelled countries in the world. Exuding a calm charisma and undeniable passion for his adventures, I really enjoyed my chat with Damien and I think you will too. So let's go straight to Damien now to hear his truly great travel adventures. Hello, Damien. You're very welcome to the podcast. It's um, great to see you. I've been living vicariously through you since 2017, where I was following your solo Atlantic row, and I've been following you ever since. So I feel like I know you very well, even though you don't know me, I know you very well. Before we talk about your adventures, and you are a true adventurer, you were a rugby player, professional rugby player for how long? I played pro rugby for 15 years, basically, uh, from leaving school here in Galway. Uh, straight into the Connacht setup at the time and then I retired yeah 15 seasons later in eastern France in a small little town called Oyana. And I know I noticed your email is dot fr is that because that was yeah. in France? And yeah I spent um, in total I spent five years playing in out in the top 14. I played for two clubs out there so um, yeah so that's why I've, I've kept the um, dot fr um, email since then and was that your first time living away from ireland then when you were in france um i had previously for france i had lived in the uk for four years in um northampton in the midlands east midlands in north um in in england playing there so that's i moved from galway to the east midlands when i was about 24. first time that i got to know you i knew about you like you played with leinster and connacht but i started following you when through facebook when you were doing your posts for the atlantic row so that was 5,000 kilometers, wasn't it, back in 2017? That's right, yeah, 5,000 kilometers. Uh, it ended up just being over that. Uh, took, yeah, 63 days, and it was <laughs> the profound adventure I'd ever been on. It was just, it was incredibly challenging on many, many levels. And, um, yeah, still something that has left, a, I suppose, indelible mark on me since then. Joe, I remember when you started on it, I have to say, I didn't think you were going to make it because I re- was it the mm. first day or the second day and you looked broken and that was the start. Well, I, I kind of was to a certain extent. I was, I was, the way I describe it is I was just shook to my core because everything that could go wrong had gone wrong in that first kind of 24 hours, 36 hours. And it was just totally unexpected. I had prepared um, myself like to a, I, what I would deem for my own standards, a very high level um, physically and mentally. And I felt I was ready for anything, but I wasn't ready for it to happen on day one. I thought day one and two would just be a nice kind of um, easy jaunt away from land. And then the real heavy stuff, the real challenging stuff, the way I saw it and foresaw it was that it would happen in the middle of the Atlantic. In fact, it actually happened on day one after about seven hours in today one everything just everything physically went wrong like my hands blistered uh, my sorry my hands all the calluses tore off and my heels blistered and then I got seasickness and then uh, I got some sort of weird cramping in all my lower limbs all the major muscle groups in my lower limbs and and just as that kind of world was which if you can imagine coming from the rugby background you you're rock like the thing you can always rely on the thing you prepare is your body and for that to be breaking down was a big enough shock and then mother nature decided to throw another couple of hurdles at me by changing the tides and changing the wind direction so i was going through this physical physically 
really difficult spot that I, I really couldn't make head or tails of and that was obviously taxing me mentally and then um, I had this other challenge then to come at the same time where the boat started to slow down basically to crawling pace like I mean it was going it was basically staying on the spot I was going 0 0.1 0 0.2 0 0.3 of a knot rowing um, when you should be doing kind of like two two and a half knots you know so yeah so I uh, I ended up persevering through it and finding a way through it but um, it was without real internal chaos real dark moments real destructive thoughts I suppose I have prepared for those things through my training so I would say my preparation got me through that and I know there was another couple of boats in the same position as me who who didn't um, unfortunately get away from those conditions you know because us as there was a there was a I was in a race called the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge and there's there was 25 boats in the race but like most of them there was most of them are four-man boats and two-man boats um, and there was only five of us people who were trying to do it as solos you know and we just don't have the power and we also have to rest at some point you know we can't row 24 hours a day like the four-man boats can and like the two-man boats so unfortunately two of those guys they you know they just didn't get away from those conditions and and you know looking back i i would say i got away from them just because i had prepared my mind for those really dark difficult moments and i was just able to kind of refocus and reset on what was within my control and just get to work on the process and you know i would say a lot of that has come from my rugby background as well and um yeah and thankfully once i think it was midway through day two finally the winds shifted uh, into the back of my boat and started to blow me away and then i was i was out to sea and my race was on <laughs> i remember another day that particularly stood out in my memory was the day capsized twice didn't you in the same day yeah that must have been intense yeah <laughs> <laughs> that was the that was the craziest day of my life by a, a long long way i mean i just it was a storm basically and uh it was a following storm though so it was pushing me in the right direction you know but you're talking like eight nine meter waves and anytime i'm not rowing the, when i was asleep basically my the boat was at the mercy of the elements right so that would mean that the boat would go side on to the waves and the waves would kind of come over the top of it and that's what happened that morning basically in that storm uh, i'm fast asleep in the cabin at around i can't remember six or seven in the morning and i'm woken up when um i'm propelled by the force of the wave that's hit the boat into the side of the cabin head first and i split my head open and the boat goes on a capsize so um two degrees over um now these boats are designed self-right so it will always come back up as long as the two cabins are shut and airtight because those are air pockets and then underneath you have all the ballast all the weight and once the weight goes on top it will just you know that's the way it works physics wise it'll just it'll self-right so so i was i was like smashed into the side of the cabin head first and i'm trying to figure out what the hell is going on you know like it's like them if you imagine somebody waking you up with like a, a hammer to the face like that's the best way i can describe it you just get this shock of pain and you're in this unconscious state and you just get this like it's 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 bizarre in its um impact because you're you're coming out of a state of well i don't know how to describe it only that it's an unconscious state and then you're awoken with pain you know and then there was like you're just trying to figure out what's happening and then i i, I kind of came to and i'm like oh yeah i'm on the boat and i felt that kind of familiar from rugby you know you get a lot of cuts around your eyes and face and it felt that kind of familiar sensation of the blood on the skin and i could like almost taste it in my mouth and then i it kind of dawned on me then in in a in a nanosecond, if you want, or in a split second, that like, oh, you're you're capsizing here, you're you're on the boat, it's capsizing, and you need to, you're bleeding because um, your head got smashed against the cap. And then yeah, the, just the day, the way the day went, then it was like I had another capsize later on that um, afternoon um, where I ended up, I was out on deck and I ended up going into the water with um, the boat as it was kind of going over. And then holding onto the boat with one hand while it went 360 or well 180 degrees underwater, and just been in this like really calm state when you know I should have been in absolute terror and chaos because if my hand had come off that handle that I just instinctively grabbed, 
um, well, it, it, it could have been it, you know, I could have been separated from the boat and it could have been a brown bread game over, you know, because there's no way if I, if I get separated from that boat, that's it. Like there's no way I'm, I'm get, catching it again, especially in a storm. So yeah, like I, I hit the water and I just remember thinking, uh, wow, this water is really warm. That was the first uh, thought that came into my head. And then I just, I kind of switched into a, um, a mental state that I had prepared and I just started telling myself to squeeze when I was, you know, I was in a incredibly surprising state of calmness underneath the water where I was just able to concentrate on that one thought and eventually the boat self-righted and uh, like it, it didn't take long it only takes about I don't know six seven eight seconds for it to go all the way around but like it feels like a bit of an eternity when you're hanging on uh, telling yourself to just squeeze your grip uh, and then it kind of lassoed me back onto deck and I was still hanging on to the handle kind of arse over tit like clenched onto it like white knuckles you know and I even to this day I'm you know I'm still kind of in awe of that uh, moment and that I was I was so calm when I went into the water and I was able to just concentrate on that one thing that I had visualized and practiced and um, yeah I think once I got through that and I kind of processed the uh, with with some i suppose when the weather relented and i got some time to kind of process it and feel a bit safer on the boat and feel like i wasn't in survival mode yeah i, I didn't feel like there was <laughs> much else that could be thrown at me um that i wouldn't get through and my, my other memory is there's some great photos of you when you arrived in the canaries wasn't it like on you on top of the boat and you know you just looked elated the, the, the look on your face it must have felt unbelievable when you wrote your family were there weren't they and yeah that's right me. yeah <laughs> feeling that must have been like winning the Heineken Cup you know it was it was it was do you know what it was it was a little bit strange because so I I knew that I was about from about 30 miles out I kind of knew that I was I've made it, you know, there's, there's nothing going to stop me now. And it, it literally was that close to the land. When I first saw land and nighttime in Antigua and I could see the light pollution from the island. And then I rode, I rode a little bit more that night, had in the morning and about 20 miles out, the land was finally visible. And that's when I felt I've made it. So the next 20 miles seemed to take fucking forever. That land did not seem like it was getting any closer for a good 18 of those miles. And then about two miles out, it became, it started to get a bit bigger and I started to be kind of more recognize the features of land. And yeah, and then it was a case of kind of making my way south uh, and then around the island actually kind of come down and around the island and in and I don't know if this this kind of even sounds strange to me saying it but I actually didn't feel very celebratory um, at the start I kind of wanted to be left alone <laughs> it's it's so bizarre even to say it but I did take a moment to uh, have it to myself like so once I crossed the official line I didn't celebrate straight away actually if I'm being honest I had a little bit of a cry um, to myself and then I got up and then there was a few boats circling around and one of them handed me a flare and then once I let that emotion out it just came out like like a flood and I was so like um primal in it like I was screaming and roaring and just yeah I it's it's difficult to describe you know because um because of the I suppose uniqueness of the adventure and you spend so much time alone um and then you arrive into this playground for the rich and famous with these super yachts around you um and you are disheveled um I lost like 28 kilos big beard uh, yesterday's food probably still in it you know and then you have this official finish line so I got up celebrated um, there's some pretty cool photos that I'm you know really kind of lovely mementos of the moment and then you got to row for another 15 minutes to get into where your family and friends are <laughs> uh, so you got to get back down and there's a bit of a kind of what would you say a lull and then you get back in and then I, when I saw my parents and saw uh, my friends that were there, my brother and my sister, and, and kind of see the emotion on their faces and see how much it meant to them was yeah, very special and a really, really special moment. And, you know, as I said before, like you're a proper adventurer. You talked there about the land, like place for rich and famous. And I, I know from your travels that that isn't the sort of traveling that you're interested in. I read... 
something that you had written about being, you know, when you were young in Ireland, growing up, you know, on deserted beaches and forest trails and that being in Ireland gave you your love of Ireland and also love of traveling. And I love that idea because I would be the same, that Ireland actually gives me a love of seeing other countries and then appreciating Ireland even more. Yeah, we like, I, I'm so grateful for those. Um, well, for the decision my parents made to kind of travel within Ireland and explore, um, I suppose, the beauty and the richness of, in particular, we were very focused on the West Coast. So we would have holidayed as uh, far away. So I'm from Galway originally. We would have followed a holiday down to West Cork, West Kerry, um, and then up to Donegal, up to as far as the Inishon Peninsula. And often we went back to like Bantry for a couple of years or Dingle for a couple of years or Inishon and Bunkrana and and Ballyliffin for a couple of years you know so I've such vivid memories of those kind of maybe they were adventures for us at the time you know they were adventures for us as a family you know packing up the nearly like the Griswolds uh, packing up the the car and taking off and you know there's such um, my dad had a a camera at the time a nice camera and I actually kind of think my love of photography came from this moment as well that there's such like there's reams of photographs at home of us on those holidays, be it in Donegal or on these, you know, I did like some of the beaches on the West Coast are just phenomenal. Like, you know, so, you know, there's, 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 there's not only memories in my mind and in my kind of long-term memory, but there's also um, pictures there to, to kind of back them up and to relive some of the memories. And, and I've, yeah, great ones of like, <laughs> there's a great one we got uh, my, I, my family think they knew I was going to be this type of person who would seek out kind of extremes and adventure when we were up at um, Malin Head and I went missing for about half an hour and I went climbing down. I wanted to get as far as close to the head of Ireland. So I went climbing down the kind of cliff face and I came back up when I got as far as I felt comfortable as a, I think I was about 12 or 13. And my dad, who is a very relaxed man, was absolutely raging. And uh, it's <laughs> he was so angry that it left a mark on everyone. Like um, my brother was probably only, if I was 13, my brother was probably only about five. And he still remembers that you never seen my dad as mad because like I would gone climbing down the bloody like a young fella like fearless climbing down the cliff face um but yeah listen like just there's loads of memories like that one you know of getting lost in forests in Sligo and getting caught in downpours and then just on beaches like down in Kerry and Cork and you know taking the boat out to like um Glengareth uh, from out to the islands there of Cork so it's uh, amazing amazing I, I just and I still to this day have if not a stronger love for the west coast and for Ireland um, because of that and I always kind of like try and relate that like I think wow like look what we have here in Ireland like it's just incredible that so many people they don't know about it they come to Ireland they go to whatever they go to Dublin they go to the Guinness Soros, they go to the Cliffs of Moher and that's you know that's great and there are all the highlights but there's these amazing places and I think well if we have these here in Ireland every other country must have the same thing and that's where I want to go I want to find the uh, Glashlon Beach in Slovakia or you know the equivalent of it in wherever Ethiopia I want to I want to see these like hidden gems in these countries because I'm sure every country has them because we have them um, and that's I get a great kind of um, reward and satisfaction for finding those places uh, around the world yeah and you know what that's i always kind of if, if if a tourist asks me for information that's exactly the information that i would give them i'm from clare myself and um it's and then i do the same thing when i'm traveling that i will always ask people you know where do you recommend where's the places mm. to go because that's where you really find i mean i actually saw one place you, you did a couch surfing in iran yeah, and that kind of right. sums it up perfectly because you really are mixing with the locals then, aren't you? It's a great, I like that idea. You, you really get to oh, know. It's fantastic because you get to um, have this you know, window, but you get to see how they live their life on, you know, on a daily basis, be it for a couple of days or, you know, I, I did three weeks going around Iran. And of course I would have visited a few different places, but that's three weeks of, living with different people in that culture and just seeing what their daily existence is like, you know, and you're, that's where you get, I think a real window into um, what it's like to live in these places and what it might be like. 
Now, I admit it's a really short window and it mightn't be a realistic window, but it's it's as close as I'm ever going to get, you know, to living in Iran, that's for sure. So, um, yeah, I really like to do it. I think it's uh, not only is it... Um, uh, perspective giver but also it's a great experience you know it's a real enriching experience to um to be down i want to say at the roots of their society you know and and seeing what that's like particularly countries like that where you don't get too much information about how they think or what how what they feel about their country and mm. um, so meeting people you really get to see their love of the country i've talked to other people who have been to iran and you they love meeting foreigners in their country they're very proud of their country very very yeah they're absolutely beautiful beautiful people yeah so friendly so welcoming um very little cynicism in them as a as a um, society you know they are i think in western culture we'd be quite guarded in how we go about um well in particular the one thing that's kind of coming up for me when I remember being in Iran was like that you just get approached by people all the time on the streets inviting you to their home for tea and sweets and at the start your first thought is well what's this guy's game what's up here this is not right you know this is uh, and then the, the truth is that's all they want. They want to get to know you. They want to have a conversation with you. They want to invite you into their home. They want you to sit down in their, uh, they probably have a special room and they want you to drink out of their special tea or coffee that they have uh, made for you. And they just want to chat to you. And they literally, a stranger, this may sound to us, they want to be your friend. Yeah. Uh, and that's their way of doing it. And it's just amazing to experience that and to see that. And is it a beautiful country? Yes. Uh, like it's very, um, what would you say? It's a, it's quite diverse. So like the further south you go, the more deserts there is. Um, it's a very rich culture, obviously, been, you know, it's the Persian culture, right? So it's, it's thousands and thousands of years old. So the cities are, are incredibly beautiful, strongly. Um, well, it's, it's quite a, um, uh, what would you say, contrasting in terms of like you have the older generation who are, you know, very religious um, and then you have the younger generation who have access now to all this information because of the internet. Um, so less religious, right? So uh, that's quite um, prominent, and you can, you know, you um, it's visible. It's it's visible. Um, and then in the north, there's quite a bit of mountains and lakes. So I attempted to climb Demavand, which is the highest mountain in Iran, while I was there. So I had a bit of time in the kind of the wilderness as well. Um, and in the snow at the time. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a pretty, pretty, pretty uh, amazing country. And, and it's right up there with the, my f- kind of favorite um, trips that I've taken. And you know the Couchsurfing, is that a website or? That's right, yeah, it is a website, yeah, couchsurfing.org. Bring a little gift from your home country to each house, is that the idea? Basically, yeah, you can either bring a gift or something really small or you can um, often, like there's no um, rule with it, you know, you don't have to do anything, but I, I... I get the impression that that's what people do or they um, just offer to uh, they cook a meal from their home uh, country or, you know, you, you do something to try and make a connection anyway with the with the because it's, you know, somebody offering you a room in their house or a base on their couch, you know, or whatever it may be. So. I, li- I like to do it in countries like that or a little bit more uh, less visited countries because, you know, you get that kind of, like I said at the start, that window into... Um, Where else, what other countries have you done that in? Did you do I that? think that my, the best, not the best, but the, the rawest experience I had with it was in Mar- a place called Mauritania, which is in um, West Africa between Morocco and Senegal. Big, vast country kind of been t- overtaken by the Sahara Desert but um, I did it there in Nawakchot which is the capital and the guy who ended up uh, being my host like lived in um, a suburb of Nawakchot that was like you know nearly half an hour outside the the main city I'm reluctant to call it a city but the town Um, and that was I mean that was just like I could have been anywhere in the world as in like nobody knew where I was. It was basically off the grid in the world, you know, and just getting to spend some time with this family. All they had was a room 
with a bit with carpet and a few cushions around it. There was nothing else in the room. And then when I came, they all moved out of that room into a tent in the back garden where they used cooking. I mean, I was like, no, 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 no. And they would not hear of it. You know, in like in Islamic cultures, like a visitor is put on a pedestal, you know, he's treated like a king. And then these people who had fucking nothing went about putting on this like feast for me for the next two days. And I was like, no, 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 no. But you can't like, they're not taking no for an answer, you know, and you can, um, you can argue with them or whatever all you want, but it's, it's not happening. And I was I, like, they'd come into the room during the day and we'd socialize in there and we'd go out and I followed, uh, his name was Mohammed, uh, to his workplace and then he'd br- bring me around and it's all these shared taxis getting around and we had to take about four shared taxis to get back because they only have a certain limit that they'll drive to get back into Nuakchot to do a bit of sightseeing. Uh, when you were in Mauritania, you did... An iron ore train, isn't that right? Is that there? Yeah, that's what I that's what I was there to kind of to do. Yeah, to what is that? Uh, so it's it's a kind of I first discovered it on like a travel blog that is this um, experience that some whatever uh, if you want to call them extreme travel search out and there's a train which is the longest train in the world when it's fully full two kilometers long I think when it's fully full and it takes um, from the mines in the northeast of Mauritania, it travels from there all the way to the coast to a place called Nuabidu, and it deposits the ore from the mines uh, at the port, and then it gets shipped around the world. And then there's this, because Mauritania is such a vast country and so underdeveloped, like there's no public transport. So what the locals started to do is to use the train as transport. So they literally move house on this train like so obviously one way it goes full the next way it comes back empty um and on top of the ore in some cases like the night i was there there was um like herds of goats herds of sheep uh, people just like with boxes and boxes of their own belongings that they were bringing to new abidu and you know for whatever reason i don't know top of the train it must be amazing experience yeah yeah so you spend about what like do you jump on the train you just jump on yeah it stops in it stops in one town so it goes from a place called Zurash to um, New Abidu, but it stops in a place in the middle called Chum, C-H-O-U-M. So that's where I got on and then from there um, it took about 13 hours overnight uh, to get to New Abidu and yeah you just hop on. Yeah it's pretty pretty amazing experience. I bet. Another place you've been to that I'm really interested in is Ethiopia. Yes, yeah. Um, spent spent a bit of time in Ethiopia. Not not half as long as I would like to or need to, but another probably. You know, when people ask me my favorite country I've traveled to, I always say it's either Ethiopia or Iceland. Ethiopia is just a. It was just there's so much that is different about Ethiopia that I about any country I've ever been in the world. Like, and I'm not just talking about the kind of geography of the place or the topography. But I went there. The reason I went there was to go to a place called Ertral, which is uh, one of six lava lakes in the world. Um, again, I came across it on a very hidden blog on the, in the depths of the internet when I was kind of looking for things in Ethiopia because I was going I was going to Tanzania and I was going to Kenya and I wanted to kind of have a I was going to do a, a group travel thing there overland and I wanted to and I, I knew well I'd want to kind of do something on my own after that and I was looking at the countries around and Ethiopia was the one that kind of was the most appealing little did i know that uh, i spent like 12 days there and i, I could, you could probably spend 120 days there and not see everything but yeah so and then i went into a bit more depth about ethiopia and i just found this amazing experience called Eritral, which is in the danical depression so i was like oh yeah i'm into that and then I just kind of built a trip around that so that's often what i do with these travels is i have one thing i really 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 appealing really want to do and then just kind of fill the trip and yeah so i had like danical depression is up on the um North East uh, border with Eritrea, and it's quite a uh, it's very remote part of Ethiopia of the world of Ethiopia. It takes a couple of days to get there from a place called Bekele. It's just this bizarre part of the world with all these strange kind of features. So it's the it's the second lowest point on the um, Earth after the Dead Sea. 
and it is the hottest place or it has the hottest average temperature in the world uh, all year round you know it, it barely gets below 50 degrees uh, it's hell and there's people living up there called the afar people which are a tribe a local tribe um uh, a kind of warrior tribe actually and they're, they're known for their ferocity so they live in this area and then there's the experience that i wanted to go there for was the volcano but there's also these other amazing kind of unique things to it called the salt flats so they, there's the afar people and there's one other tribe uh, the name escapes me now but both of them have a bit there's a bit of a hierarchy there but they the afar people and the other tribe mine the salt and then they they transport the salt on camels so these trains of camels uh, they load up the camels and they walk for basically about five days to the nearest town and then they sell the salt for like I don't know a dollar or something so it's the most like it's basically the hardest job in the world <laughs> or it has the reputation for that um, because of the hardship and the heat and to just imagine doing that your whole life I mean it'd be pretty stoic I think by the end of it so we saw them we had got to visit the the mining of the salt and then there's these salt mountains there so we we got to see that yeah and then we uh did a couple of homestays in that region and then we did the trek to the volcano which is still my top my my favorite travel experience I've ever had it's it was the most incredible thing to witness to be able to stand on the crater of a volcano literally 20 meters from the lava and it was spitting boiling and churning and then spitting like lava 15 meters into the air 10 meters above our head whatever it was mm. just mind-blowing like absolutely you walk up to this thing and you just see a glow of red you know when you're coming up to it and it's like something out of lord of the rings and mordor and all that and then you spend the night on that crater surrounded by the uh, the lava churning away and then you hike down the next day uh, to stay out of the heat you know uh, the next morning and uh, yeah just incredible incredible i can really relate to you feeling in awe of the volcano I remember being in Sicily and seeing the red glow of lava coming out of Mount Etna at night. Beautiful sight. Or when I was in Chile, I hiked to the top of the snow-covered Mount Villarica near Pucan. And it was an active volcano, so only one guide in the town would bring us up to the crater. And at the top, you could see the lava inside and we were surrounded by sulfuric smoke. It was beautiful, but very scary too. And on that trip, you mentioned Tanzania. Did, were you doing Kilimanjaro on that trip? I had done Kili actually the year before, and that's kind of what brought me back there because I just flew into Tanzania, climbed Kilimanjaro, and then kind of flew back out. And I, I wanted to see a bit more of the region. Um, it was all a bit of a mess because the year before I had had issues with my passport at Dublin airports. I, w- I, was, I was meant to get on another overland trip um, through that region and into uh, Rwanda. And I got to Dublin airport. I was refused entry onto my flight because I had an air bubble on my passport page. You know, the, the bio page? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. They wouldn't let me on the flight. Uh, so I basically missed that whole trip that I'd... Um, booked and paid for so i like went home panic stations got myself a new passport in about five days and what in that five days i was online looking for things to do and i saw there was a space on a kilimanjaro trip so i said fuck it i'm going i'm going to climb kilimanjaro still playing rugby at the time um but i just tried to salvage something of my off season you know and i really wanted to do something um so that's how that came up and then it was just a real, it was just in and out, climbed the mountain and got out. So I, I just, the next year I went back and explored it much more. That's gas, you said that about Tanzania. I went to Tanzania with Emer on our honeymoon. We were going to climb Kilimanjaro and I had a bit of a mishap myself actually. When we arrived at the airport in uh, Tanzania, my luggage didn't arrive. So I had no luggage, nothing. I had no gear for Kilimanjaro, no boots, no jacket. So we're in a bit of a rush. So I literally had to go into the gift shop. And um, I got a t-shirt with like uh, the big five animals in the shape of Africa. That was it. That's all I could get. But we ended up um, doing Kilimanjaro, but I had to borrow all the gear off, off a guy. I had a parka jacket with a broken zip, a, a, a balaclava, a woolen, woolen balaclava. I'm on the top of Kilimanjaro with like broken zip, workmen's trousers, and uh, I've got a big, uh, you know, litre bottle plastic bottle frozen in my pocket it was funny like and then after that we went to an amazing place called Pemba which is um, just off Tanzanian island and stayed in this gorgeous hotel called Fundu Lagoon like really gorgeous 
and uh, after a few days it was a lot of honeymooners actually there and after a few days we got talking to this couple they were like yeah we're trying to figure you out because I was walking around with these like you know the big five that was it I had two t-shirts so I managed to get up Kilimanjaro in all borrow gear boots jacket balaclava everything I'll actually put up a photo of me at the top of Kilimanjaro on Instagram so you can see it do you love mountains or is it the challenge? It's the challenge more than mountains. Like, so the first time, so people, I, I've noticed rightly, if I'm right or wrong, I'm not sure, but what I've noticed is there's some people who are absolutely obsessed with mountains and in particular climbing, they're more climbers, you know, and I think that's more the state they get into when they're climbing from the books I've read. But I never really had that. Like for me, mountains are fucking hard. They're literally, they're, you know, living on them is just, there's a reason nobody lives on them. It's just, it's a hard existence. So I never really fell in love with one until I went to Denali in Alaska last year and then I got it then I saw why people love mountains it was just the most incredible place I've ever wow it was just the Alaskan range and flying into the river was two and a half weeks on the mountain and everywhere you looked you're jaw was hitting the bloody snow you know it was just it was just incredible but my love really for them came from the challenge you know just trying to survive in um that oxygen depleted state and what that means for your kind of uh the mental stress that you're put under and just finding a way through that so that's where it really came from and then it's kind of it has morphed a little bit you know if you told me i was going to experience a mountain like denali every year i'd be like yes yes please i'm that's good that's for me but if you told me i was going to experience a mountain like uh Akinkagua every year i'd be like no nah, you're grand i'm, I'm fine <laughs> <laughs> when you were doing that that obviously that's part of your seventh summit which you're, which you're in the you're in the middle of mm. it now you were going to do Everest in, in May which unfortunately has been postponed that's so right yeah so the seven? Uh, five of the seven done and like you said Everest was meant to be number six and it was in the books for uh, or was in the uh, plan to do it last this year um, April, May, which is the only real season for commercial climbing on, on Everest. And it, it just got postponed as, as, as everything, you know, did as the world closed down. But, um, it, it is in the book, it is in the calendar for April, May next year. So kind of living in hope now that that's going to uh, come to fruition because I really haven't done any, uh, major challenges since, um, Karsten's pyramid, which was the fifth of the seven, which was in West Papua in indonesia in august of last year so i, I could you, sir, just could you, you tell know. us a little about that one because just you know as i said i've been following you for years and i i really was worried for you during that one because you you summited on your own in in fog didn't you that looks scary yeah it <laughs> so it it that was a proper climb as such like that's you know whereas aconcagua elberis even Denali to a certain, there's not a lot of climbing involved. There's a little bit on Denali where you clip in and clip out of some ascenders and descenders. But, you know, whereas Karsten's base and you're going up it for a good few hours, you know, now there is fixed lines, so you don't have to fix the line. So there's, if there's any climbers listening to this, they're like, I'll probably calling my bullshit here saying, hang on a second now. But for me anyway, I, I would class that as, a, I'm not a climber, so I class that as a proper climb. Like I was, I was you know, you're rappelling down and you're pulling yourself up and it's a pretty sheer face of I don't know 50 60 degrees anyway you know so it's it's um but I loved it so I absolutely loved it but I, I there was three of us attempting that summit with our guide a guide named Poxy O-X-I and he he had um he'd done the most summits of Karsten's he's like 106 summits or something so he was the most casual guy like you know we're all there in our like uh, technical gear and this guy's in a pair of trainers and basically a pair of jeans and a, a windbreaker like you know he's like whatever thing having a fag every time we stop but he started getting a bit frustrated with the two guys I was with because they were really slow and to be honest I was getting a bit frustrated with myself you know anyway I said to him do you mind if I go ahead and he goes like no no you're good you can climb and I saw so I just took off on my own you know um because it was pretty obvious the route there was only these 
one or two lines, you know, a few meters apart. And outside of that, unless you brought your own lines, you know, you weren't climbing up this thing. So, you know, the route was pretty clear. So he wasn't worried about that. And he knew I had a bit of common sense, a bit of cop on. And I suppose he just worried about the other two lads and the time they were taking. And he didn't know if we would have enough of a window to summit together. So he just said, off you go. So, um, yeah, I, I just took off. Now, I did wait from time to time for them to kind of catch up um but yeah basically kind of climbed it most of the day on my own and then i just came down on my own a lot of fun although uh, fun for me mightn't be fun for everyone else but i i loved it because it was snowing and it was dark and it was repelling and there was a there was a lot it took a lot of like kind of concentration and it took a lot of um where would all and it took a lot of you know the skills i feel i have as a person so they actually get to be expressed a little bit which was which was great so it was good training for everest too wasn't it i think so yeah like the technical side of it was it was great to experience that because I, I don't have a lot of i don't have a lot of experience with it you know so it was really good to do that and it was, it was just it was a it felt like even though it was a commercial expedition and the problem with commercial expeditions are not pro, it's not a problem issue i have from time to time is you're a bit confined you know you're a bit like you're reeled in and that's not an adventure to me you know an adventure is the freedom of it all and dealing with what comes up so i understand that like if I want to get to the top of Mount Everest, that's not until I become uh, an incredibly uh, skillful and competent climber, that's never, ever going to happen. So I have to do a true commercial um, provider first and foremost, but it, it still doesn't mean that it doesn't frustrate me or I don't get frustrated on those um, commercial expeditions by the kind of uh, confines of the format. So to not have that on one and to be kind of let free to my own devices was uh, very satisfactory. But I, like a lot of your travel is solo travel. Do you prefer solo traveling? I do. Yeah, I do. Um, I prefer because just the decisions are yours to make. So are the challenges are yours to overcome. There's everything. All the responsibility is on your shoulders, which I find very um, uplifting and empowering. You know, I think that's where you learn the most is when you take full responsibility and try and deal with whatever comes up. So, you know, um, I do really enjoy it. And I really enjoy the, the space um it gives me mentally when i'm moving around the world be it be it as cloud surfing or be it on the atlantic you know um i really enjoy that headspace the the things that come up the perspective it gives me and the things that i see about myself that i can now have information that i can use to improve myself that's that's the way i would term it anyway improve, improve myself as a person is there any places that countries that you have on your target I, you know i know you you probably have a massive bucket list but is there somewhere in particular that jumps out that you haven't been to yet that you'd love to go to probably millions yeah i'd, I'd love to go to pakistan it's kind of been on the radar for a little while i've heard great things and um i'd love to have an adventure through there i heard like met a few travelers in iran you know i was uh, that had said that Pakistan is is like Iran and the people are very similar. And I know it's from reading them. I don't know if you've ever read any of Dervla Murphy's um, books, but um, amazing, like an amazing woman. And um, I know just from reading some of her books about cycling the Karakoram Highway and that, how beautiful it is. Uh, so I'd love to get up into that region and experience that region and, you know, just the people and, and then experience Pakistan as a, as a whole. One of my favorite books is uh, In Xanadu from uh, William Delaphine. And um, he talks about that area. I, I'd love to go around there as well, I have to say. You have the Everest, obviously, as a target. And is there any other adventures that you're planning? Yeah, so, um, so Everest is in the calendar like i said april may next year and then uh, going back to kyrgyzstan to climb a mountain called peak lenin with a group i'm bringing a group with um, earth's edge which is an irish adventure travel company so that's in august and then in the summer uh, i myself and a lifelong friend called gussie farrell are going to attempt to row the atlantic so from new york to galway city so we're both galway boys so we're, we're going to try and row the much less uh, forgiving uh, north atlantic uh, leaving from manhattan arriving in our hometown in the summer of 2022 so it's called Project Empower because we want to kind of use the learnings and use the experience and use everything we go through to, you know, 
show people, I suppose, the, the value in huge ambition, huge, like putting yourself out there, trying to attain something that is maybe extraordinary and all you go through and that it's within us all to do that. You know, we all have those capacities uh, and we want to kind of show people like Gussie, my mate, who's doing a row, was, um, was given 5% chance to ever walk again only two years ago after a freak accident. And he has proven everyone wrong, all the doctors, all the surgeons, uh, not only back walking, not only regained his full mobility, but his back walking, he even runs the odd time. And now he's going to he try and row across the Atlantic with me. So, I mean, if that's not uh, proof that we all have incredible capacities, I don't know what is. I saw a lovely clip on Instagram. You, you rode from Inishir to Galway the other day, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, we did in a Kirk. And it must be lovely to have a target, something to train for, another adventure. Yeah, oh uh, yeah, like uh, <laughs> I haven't, haven't had two cancelled by, um, by COVID. Um, it's getting a bit frustrating because I'm yearning for the road a little bit and, and for an adventure, but uh, it was great to get that little kind of mini one out of the way there, the other, or to experience that mini one the other day with that row in the Kirk, you know, and it, it was a proper challenge, you know, it was, it was hard graft and to get it over the line and pull it into Galway docks was, was really cool. And um, yeah, to have these ones in the calendar now for the next two years or it's really, really exciting. And I, hopefully we can, you know, hopefully none of them are put off by COVID and we can get out again and, and get um, doing what I love to do. I actually was just thinking of you there because just literally before you came on the call and there was massive thunder and it's loud as I've ever heard. And I was thinking of you in a boat in the Atlantic, much more intense, I'd say, than the last. Trip. I think so. I think so. Just those northern latitudes, they're traditionally uh, wilder. What I would say is that we got very wild crossing uh, the year I did the Atlantic road. That's why there was so many uh, failures and so many capsizes. And I went through it myself quite heavily. So that was unusual that it was that extreme so it might be similar to that the only difference is and it's a huge difference is the fact that it's going to be so cold you know at least as a um, in those kind of that mid-atlantic trade winds route that i did before um the sun comes up every day and you absolutely worship it like it makes such a difference when in in your mental state when the sun rises and you get some heat on your skin and warmth into your bones there won't be much of that on this crossing you know it'll be it'll be tough like i mean the cold is a very taxing thing on the mind and i think that'll just be difficult a real difficult part of this crossing i could really relate to that i remember being in the atacama desert and when the sun comes up just feeling like slowly the heat the energy that it gives you and the other thing that'll be a little bit different about the row is obviously you'll have your partner with you so. yeah so that that will be a big difference you know i think just the having another human in your vicinity will bring um it's it's challenges in particular on the strain of that just one relationship the stress of the environment and the undertaking and how that's going to be projected onto that one relationship but at the same time it could also there will be massive positives of having somebody else there to share the experience um and that's kind that's why you know i had no interest in doing the row on my own this time you know i really wanted to do it in with somebody or with a, a group of people so for the challenges that bring but also for the kind of increased rewards at the end yeah is that what to say a problem shared is a problem half do you know it'll be great to yeah. have that. so there's a question that i intend to ask everybody our last question which my wife Emer came up with so i'd be in trouble if i never asked this question <laughs> so it is if you close your eyes and take four deep breaths allow yourself to think of your happy place where would that be and why I might just do that. So let's see what comes up. So I presume we're talking about travel experiences here, right? Yeah. Some people have actually picked stuff at home. Yeah. But ah, okay. Okay. Sorry. The original plan was travel. Just a few people have mentioned things at home, but the original plan was travel. Mm. And that got me thinking since too. When I started doing interviews with people, all of a sudden I realized my current happy place is down by the river shore every day walking. That's what inspired me. This podcast was actually walking on the river shore, surrounded by the mountains, listening to travel podcasts. And my original plan was Greece. And then I went, actually, it's the shore one mile from my yeah. house. 
So I uh, won't be going too far either. Um, a little bit of a drive from Galway is there's a beach called Glashlon. It's in northern Connemara, not far from Killary. And I just adore the place. And that on a deserted winter day would be my happy place, you know, with maybe one or two souls hanging around, walking the dog or wrapped up. I love the, the walk. It's overlooked by Ray, which is the highest mountain in Connacht. It's actually on the Mayo side of Killary, but it's just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful setting. The walk and then a dip in the ocean, like the beach and the water is just, it's kind of like a little cove and the water is just crystal clear, spectacular. Even on a cold January or February day, it's even better in my opinion, or for me, I, I enjoy it more. So yeah, I think that would be it. I actually got married, that's beside Renville, isn't it? Not oh, fair at all, I got, yeah. I got married in Renville and my wife swam on the morning of the wedding there. And then the day after myself and Emer went scuba diving off the beach and it was just magical. It's really a special part of the world, I think, Northern Connemara. Some of the beaches up there and, you know, the villages and the towns and the people and the mountains and the scenery. You know, I could talk all day about the bends and climbing up there or the Mam Turks and the Aina Valley. And now I have roots there. And my mum is from that part of the world. So um, we visited, obviously, regularly out to Letterfrack in, in Northern Connemara when we were young. And, I, you know, any chance I get, I'm, I'm gone out there swimming in one of the beaches, be it Glash Lawn or Renville or Ballycanely or wherever. And, you know, on the other side, my Emer's sister has a house beside White Strand, which is on oh, the other side. And I know White Strand well. It's, oh, wow, that's amazing. Yes, but up around that area, around Killary, it's just magical on both sides. Both sides, yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, one of, if, if people ever get a chance to climb Wheel Ray, you will get some of the best views in Ireland from the top if you get it on a fine day. So you got White Strand, you got Silver Strand, you can see across the Glashlawn, you can see the Bends, you can see the Ina Valley, you can see the Mam Turks. You can also, um, if you turn to your kind of northeast, you can actually see Crow Patrick. You can see out to Clare Island. It's just absolutely stunning up there. It's just beautiful. And it's a nice climb as well, especially if you go from the, the Dulac side, you know, not far from Delphi Adventure Center there. And it's a nice hard climb and it's a great day. And it's just it's just a, a stunning, stunning kind of view of these kind of all these beautiful parts of the West Coast. And thanks, you know, that's a lovely way to finish because we started talking about adventures and little beaches in Ireland when you were young with your family. So that's a lovely way to finish because even though we talk about travel adventures around the world, we probably one of the most beautiful countries in the world. Thank you. Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. You know, I've... I've been to quite a few corners of the world and the west of Ireland on a fine day rivals them all. It's just, yeah, it's just a stunning, stunning place. I really enjoyed that chat and we could have gone on for hours more with all these tales. I would ask you to please subscribe so a new episode will appear in your library every week. I would also appreciate if you could leave a rating and review as it helps others to discover this podcast. I would really recommend you following Damien's adventures on his Instagram, Alstock, and also on his Patreon account as well, which has got loads of amazing information, and where you can follow his adventures on the row and Everest next year. To find out who's on every week, please follow me on Instagram at Travel Tales with Ferdo. I have an incredibly special episode planned for next Tuesday, which is so topical, I haven't even recorded it yet. And I can't wait to share that with you. Take care and keep dreaming of future travels. Travel Tales with Virgo.